Welcome back to another Harvest Word podcast. My name is Clifton Gadboys, and if you've been keeping up with my podcast, you know that last episode I shared that I've been in prayer and that I had this peace from the Lord that I could commit to publishing the podcast uh, on a schedule about once a month or once every four weeks. But here it is. It's just three weeks since I published episode three. I'm back in the studio. I've been working on an outline, and this is something that the Lord communicated to me some time ago. He made it clear even back then that he wanted me to get this um, written and recorded and published before Election Day here in America. So that's why you've got another podcast so soon. I may not be so quick (laughs) to turn around the next episode. I will get that out around about the end of November. But the podcast for today comes from my private devotion time. Like most of you, I hope I set aside uh, time to spend reading the Word, spend in prayer, and listening to the Lord, just just being quiet, being still, and trying to hear what He says. Now, like perhaps many of you, I have days where I'm very good at that. I have some days where it doesn't work out so well. I just say, Lord, forgive me. I'm going to try to do better. Amen. Okay, so the title of the podcast today actually comes from John 16, Uh, verse 33a, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. And when I read that verse, the Holy Spirit was, hey, you know, what did Jesus say that brought them peace? And I thought, huh, okay, yeah, that's that's something good to know. Because as we all know right now, there is a distinct lack of peace, certainly in the world. And certainly we all could use uh, some peace right now, especially the peace that the Lord brings so in order to find out what Jesus was saying, uh, you know, in that part, I actually, you know, I started flipping back in my Bible and I, and I kept flipping and I kept flipping and I actually ended up going all the way back to John 13 to find the place where Jesus began speaking, you know, in the setting, in the scenario. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to go through all those chapters, John 13, 14, 15, and 16, and I'm going to skip over some verses, and I'm going to highlight some verses, okay? And please understand, the verses that I skip over, I mean, every word in the Bible is worth of study, but for the purposes of this podcast and the point that the Lord wants me to make here, I'm going to, you know, just kind of mention some things and go on. So John 13 opens up with the Last Supper, and then Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and, you know, he has that little conversation with Peter about it. Amen and amen. So that brings us up to about verse 19. This is Jesus now speaking to the disciples. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. So let's just stop for a second. What Jesus is saying there to the disciples, and to even us today, is that sometimes the Lord will reveal what's going to happen as proof of who he is. Now, this is incredibly important to understand for many, many reasons. And I'm not going to stay on this right this minute, but I I wanted to point that out because I'm going to come back to it, both in this podcast and in future episodes. Okay, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, again, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to stay on this point right here. I'm going to move on. But I want to say that you cannot separate what Jesus said in verse 19 from what he said in verse 20. Those are two thoughts that go together. First, he's saying, I'm going to tell you stuff so that you can believe. But then he's saying, I'm going to send you people. And they're going to tell you stuff from me. going to tell you things before they happen. And when they come to pass, you will know that Jesus sent them and that it's all coming from the Father. 
Okay, moving on. Verse 21, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. So here Jesus is repeating something. He's already told them that he was going to be betrayed. He told them in Matthew 20. Uh, he told them in Mark 8. That's where he rebuked Peter. He mo- he told them in Mark 10, uh, <laughs> which is kind of a, the disciples acted really funny about that one. But, you know, it's all fulfilling Psalm 41.9 and other scriptures. You know, he's doing like he did in several different places. He said, look, you know, this is what the scripture said about me. Okay, so we're going to move through uh, Peter asking John, hey, who is it? Judas leaving. Um, Jesus said that he's glorified and he gives the disciples the command to love one another. Okay, John 14. Now, Jesus talks about he's going to go away and prepare a place for them and for us. Uh, He talks about oneness with the Father, and he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. So now that brings us to chapter 15. Jesus talks about, I am the vine. Uh, He commands again that we, as Christians, as followers of Christ, that we love one another. Things that the Lord repeats, very important. So now that brings us to verse 18. This is Jesus speaking again. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave? There's that word doulos from last episode. Is A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Now I'm going to stop here and I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think that at that moment... The disciples felt very comforted. Do you think that they liked hearing that they're going to be hated by the world? That they're going to be persecuted? I think that most of us would say no. But see here, and this is where many people really don't understand what the Lord intends, both in that specific moment with the disciples and with us today. We all love Romans 8:28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But they very, very rarely do I ever hear verse 29. And that is that, you know, they think, well, his purpose is for me to feel good and, you know, have a nice car, a nice house. Well, yeah, maybe sometimes. But, you know, very rarely do people read or talk about verse 29 which contains God's purpose for all things working working together for our good. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So the primary purpose for God, as far as we're concerned, is first, you know, John 3.16, right? Okay. But then most people forget about that you know that God has another purpose for us other than just to be saved and then you know kind of run around this world until he returns or he calls us home no he intends for us to be conformed to be like Jesus so that's what the word christian means christ like you know it's not just some trendy phrase that they came up with in antioch no it has a very specific meaning but yet today we seem to have lost the fundamental meaning of the word Christian. 
Okay, I'm I'm, I'm getting distracted here. Uh, that that is certainly something that I am going to talk about in another episode. I know I keep saying that I'm going to have to go back through these episodes and find all the times I said, "Hey, I'll talk about that more in another episode," and actually do that. But the verses that we have looked at so far, you know, Jesus has talked about some very good things, some very profound things, but yet he has also talked about some very disturbing things, some things that are, you know, alarming and like, no, no, I I don't like that. And remember the context, these things I have spoken to you so that in me, you may have peace. Okay. So we've seen some peace, but some not peace. So we're still in John 15 and after verse 21, Jesus kind of rounds out the chapter by talking about how the Holy Spirit will come and be with the disciples, which is a good thing. So now that brings us up to John 16, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. And again, we're just we're, I'm going to stop there and talk about that verse, about what it's really saying. So what Jesus is saying here to the disciples, and again to us, is that he has told them things that are going to happen in advance. We can eliminate the good things, which is why I've kind of brushed over them. But he's talking about, I've told you the bad things so that when they happen, you're not going to get discouraged, that you're not going to lose heart, that you will keep going. Now, if you stop and think about that, if Jesus himself thought that this kind of encouragement was necessary for the apostles, for the eleven How much more is something like that important for us today? See, my prayer is that not only Christians who I know and know me and are kind of, you know, helping spread the word about the podcast, those Christians who believe in the gifts of the Spirit are in operation today. But my prayer is that some Christians who don't believe that are going to listen to this podcast and other episodes and realize and question what they've been told by, you know, pastors and leaders that say that the gifts of the Spirit are not in operation today. Now, for the moment, you know, I'm going to put that discussion on hold because that's really not the purpose of this episode today. But, (laughs) and you can hear me laughing, I will discuss it in another episode. Okay, we are ready for John chapter 16, verse 2. They will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Here again, Jesus is saying, look, you know what? Bad things are coming. And I'm telling you ahead of time so that you don't stumble, so that your love will not grow cold. And we all know that that part, you know, I'm referencing Matthew 24, 12. You know, Jesus doesn't say there in John 16, but when I was making my notes, the Lord just reminded me of it. And so I put it in. Now in verse five and six, Jesus talks about how he's going away and that he knows how the disciples are very sad at that. But then he tells them in verses seven through 15, look, you know, it's to your advantage. The Holy Spirit's going to come. And then he tells them all the things that the Holy Spirit's going to do. I wonder how often people have rejected something as not being from God, air quotes, just because, at least for the short term, it made them feel sad or they, you know, had a difficult time. Uh, Verse 16 through 22, Jesus continues to talk about his death and resurrection. And verse 23 through 31, Jesus talks about how he's now speaking to them plainly. And, you know, they're very happy about that. So now we're almost right back where we started. We're at John 16, verse 32 and 33. And so now I'm going to read those to you. 
Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own house and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Now, many of you, I'm sure, will have noticed a couple of things. First, that in the beginning of the episode, that I only quoted John 16, a okay? I didn't quote the second part, and there's a reason for that. I did it because I wanted to establish in context what Jesus was talking about when he said, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. He wasn't just talking about the good things. Okay, he was talking about all the trials and tribulations that the disciples were going to face down the road. And that brings me to the second thing is that some of you may have noticed that I did not quote John 14, 27 when I was, you know, kind of going through the chapters there. But I'm going to quote it now. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So what Jesus is saying there is that there's really at least two kinds of peace. One, there's the peace of the world, you know, kind of the go along and get along kind of peace. And then there's peace from the Lord that despite what may be happening on the outside, that we still retain that peace. You know, that's exactly what Paul was talking about in Philippians 4, that peace that passes all understanding. And Jesus was telling the disciples, look, there's going to be some bad things coming your way, and you're not going to be able to depend on the kind of peace that the world gives you. No, you're going to have to depend on the fact that Jesus overcame the world and that the disciples can go to him and receive that peace that only he can give, that peace that passes all understanding, even in the midst of all the trials and tribulations being hated by the world that they were going to go through. And the exact same thing is true for us today. So now I've taken 14 minutes to establish that from the word, from the very things that Jesus was telling the disciples on the night before he was crucified, that when Jesus is talking about giving us peace, Jesus is not talking about some warm, fuzzy, feel good, okay? No, he's talking about the kind of peace that comes even in the midst of every kind of trial and tribulation that both the disciples were going to go through and that Jesus expects that his followers going to go through as well. And so now you may be asking, Cliff, so why did you take all that time to establish that? I'll tell you when I come back. Just a quick reminder that my friends at FierceHopeFashion.com are helping to sponsor the podcast. You can visit FierceHopeFashion.com and check out their line of Christian-themed t-shirts. You can even leave a prayer request. FierceHopeFashion.com. Rise up and release fierce hope. Okay, welcome back. So in the first part of the podcast, I established um, what you might call a biblical definition for the kind of peace that Jesus was talking about when he spoke in John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me, meaning Jesus, you may have peace. So there's actually a couple of reasons that I took all that time to do that, to establish that, to make sure that what I'm talking about is grounded in the word. And the first reason is that for some time now, there's been a growing number of Christians churches, and yes, even whole denominations who, while they accept and practice the gift of prophecy for today, they have developed this habit of rejecting anything negative, i.e. anything that makes the person feel bad. Now, from the scriptures I was talking about in the first part of the episode, when Jesus was prophesying to his disciples, he was telling them 
things that were going to come, and he was had a purpose for doing that, I show that, yes, he told them some things that didn't make them feel good. So I'm not going to retake that ground, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to examine a Bible verse that people who hold this philosophy about prophecy, that it always has to be positive, it always has to make the person feel good, that they a verse that they often use to justify this position. And that verse is 1 Corinthians 14.3, but one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Now, when you look at that verse on first pass, that position seems to be justified that prophecy is supposed to be positive. But as I talked about in the last episode, English is an imprecise language, and that there's a reason that the Lord used both Koine Greek and Hebrew to be the languages that the scriptures were originally written in, because they are more precise languages than English. So yes, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to buckle your seatbelt. I'm going Greek. Now in that verse, I'm going to look at three words, edification, exhortation, and consolation. But I'm actually going to look at those in reverse order. So the first word that I'm going to talk about is consolation. Now, the Greek word there is paramuthia, and it's actually kind of a unique word in that it only appears one time in the Greek New Testament, and it doesn't appear in the Septuagint, which is when the Jews, around about 250 BC, were asked to translate the scriptures from Hebrew into Greek. And actually, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that during the time of Jesus, it was actually copies of the Septuagint that a lot of people were using instead of reading the scriptures in the original Hebrew. So the meaning that I found for paramuthia is any address, whether made for the purpose of persuading or for arousing and stimulating comfort. In practical terms, and I'm going to draw you a picture here, imagine someone talking to someone who is distressed, and they are going through all the reasons why, despite all the things that have gone bad, that everything's going to be okay. And I know that's legitimate because I have both given and received prophetic words of that nature. So the second word that we're going to look at is exhortation. And in the Greek, it's the word paraklesis. Now, the meaning that I found for that word is a calling near or summons, a supplication or entreaty, admonition or encouragement and comfort. As part of the research for this episode, I looked up every single reference of that word in the Greek New Testament. And by and large, the way that word is used in most cases is used with the definition of encouragement and comfort. And the best place to see that is 2 Corinthians 1 verses 3 through 7, where that word is actually used five different times. But the writer of the book of Hebrews, and some of us think it was Paul, some of us think it's somebody else, and that's really not the question here. But the writer of the book of Hebrews uses the word actually three different times, and all three times it's in the admonition sense. And when I looked at those occurrences, I think that the best one I found was actually in Hebrews 12, verse 5. I'm going to go there. I'm actually going to read verses 3 through 6 to kind of give you the context. Verse 3, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are punished by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he punishes every son whom he accepts. 
So while there are some verses which show that the word paraklesis is used in the sense of bringing encouragement and comfort, we do have some examples which show it being used in the sense of an admonition, a reminder. And sometimes those reminders are not something that we particularly enjoy, but yet they're something that we need. And here again, I have both given and received prophetic words of that nature. So while looking at the Greek in this verse hasn't dispelled yet the notion that prophecy has to be positive, I think that we can now say that there's a crack in the armor, so to speak. So now for the third word that we're looking at in this verse, edification. And the Greek word is oikodeme. And the meaning of that word is to means to build up, literally like a building or to promote growth. And when I looked at other places that this word is used in the Greek New Testament, I found Acts 7.48 and Acts 17.24. That's where Peter and then Paul both refer to Christians as You know, the Lord dwelling in houses not made with hands. So the literal sense of this word is of a building being constructed. So I'm now going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'm going to start with verse 9. And it is a verse where Paul uses this word, but actually I'm going to read everything through verse 17. And the reason for that is to not only give you some larger context... But hopefully I'm going to drive home the point that in this day and age where you can go online and you can look at the Hebrew, you can look at the Greek, and you can really dig down deep and find the true understanding. Because if we're going to make a stand on verses, we really need to get into the Greek, into the Hebrew to have that understanding. But not only that, but to look at the way that the words are used in other places in the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. God's building. Now carrying on with verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as though through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Now, if you'll remember, earlier in the episode, I talked about Romans 8.28 and 8.29. Do you remember when I said that God's purpose was not only to save us, but to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ? In those verses that I just read from 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is talking about the exact same thing. In the natural, before someone builds a building, be it a shed, a house, or you know something you know like a big store, or even a skyscraper, the first thing that is done is that the land is prepared, okay? And then the foundation is laid, right? And then, you know, the building starts going up. But what happens if in the course of the building going up, being built, that it starts to not conform to the plan, that it starts, you know, something's off, something's not right. In the natural, the architect or the construction foreman or whoever's in charge and whoever sees the problem, they'll stop the work, right? They'll look at it and then, you know, sometimes they'll actually tear down part of what's been built because it doesn't conform to the master plan, the blueprint that's being used to construct the building. So let me ask you this, what happens in the spiritual sense when we as the temple of God who are being built up all of a sudden start having things 
on us which don't conform to the image of Jesus Christ. When we have begun to, as Paul said, build with wood, hay, and straw. So let me ask you this. If you bought a house, okay, you paid to have a house built, and you came and visited the construction site, and you saw that the construction was not going to plan, what would you do? You would say something, right? As the person who paid for the house, as the person who's going to live in it, you would say, look, there's something wrong there. Stop what you're doing, tear it down, and make it right. As someone who's invested in the house, you want a house that was built according to the plan. Do you think that the God of the universe, who invested his son Jesus Christ into our salvation, and who is doing his best, while at the same time giving us free will to build us up into a habitation for him, into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, would look at us, and if we're building with wood, hay, and straw, allow us to continue without him saying something? Absolutely not. He is going to say something. Jeremiah 1.10, See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. There again is that contrast that Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 3. Okay, some people are building with wood, hay, and straw. Others are building with gold, silver, and precious stone. Whatever is of wood, hay, and straw, before the Lord calls someone home, he is going to go after it. He's going to try to pluck it up. He's going to try to break it down, to destroy it, and to overthrow it. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, Paul says, We are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God. Some translations say vain imagination. And what Paul is talking about there is the same thing that Jesus was talking about in Mark 7 when he calls out the Pharisees that they're hypocrites, okay? You know, they do all these rituals, but they really don't hold to the true understanding of the Word of God. This is what he says in verse 6 from Isaiah, This people honors me with their lips but their heart is far away from me, and in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Verse 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Those things are what Paul is talking about when he's talking about vain imaginations and wood, hay, and stubble, using using the traditions of men in place of the Word of God. Now, I think it's very safe to say that of a lot of people that we study in the Bible, that Paul had a very unique perspective on how far astray one can go if you follow the traditions of men and ignore the Word of God for what it actually says. In Acts 9, when Paul encountered the Lord, you know, it says that something like scales fell from his eyes. And we understand that, that what the Lord was doing was that he was removing the veils from Paul's eyes, and not just his eyes, but from his heart, from his mind, from his understanding of both what the scriptures actually say and who Jesus really is. So let me ask you this, how comfortable was Paul? How happy did that make Paul feel? Do you think it was comfortable? I don't think so. Matter of fact, the Bible says that he fasted for three days, didn't eat, didn't drink water, and he spent the entire time praying, sitting there blind. So when Jesus appeared to Paul and revealed to Paul the error of his ways, in other words, the wood, hay, and stubble that Paul was using to build on his life, do you think that that was Jesus being mean? Or do you think that was Jesus being a loving God who cares intensely about his creation, his child, Paul, and he wanted to show him all the ways that he's 
doing things wrong so that he can change and do them correctly the way the Lord intended. And yes, I am a firm believer that the Holy Spirit tries to talk to people, to convict people, to woo people in a loving way. But there comes a point where people get stubborn, they get prideful, and because the Lord loves us so much, he will take those tough love steps. Just a few minutes ago, I read those verses from Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are punished by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he punishes every son whom he accepts. Skip down to Hebrews 12.10. This is Paul talking about discipline. For our human fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, the Lord, disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems to not be pleasant, but painful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And even more so, let's go back to uh, 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, Let's skip down to verse 24, talking about the purpose of prophecy. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Now, does that sound like that those people who they're having their, the secrets of their hearts revealed, are they having fun? Does that feel good? Probably not, but it is for their good. And we have many examples, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, of that being the function of prophets and people with the gift of prophecy, okay? When Jesus called out the Pharisees, calling them hypocrites, uh, John the Baptist called them brood of vipers, Okay, Jesus, again, called them whitewashed tombs. You know, yes, he was calling them out, but he was trying to reach them. He was exposing their true condition in the hopes that they would look at themselves in horror and fall down in repentance. And of course, it didn't make them feel good. And, you know, we know that most of them actually just maintained their pride and went on. But still, they can't say that God did not try to reach them. In the book of Acts, you know, we have the example of Paul. We have the example of Ananias and Sapphira. Oh, yes, I went there in Acts chapter 8. We have this gentleman named Simon who, you know, wanted to pay money so he could have the ability to lay hands and give people the Holy Spirit. He was actually coming from a very wrong place, and Peter strongly rebuked him. But then, you know what, let's look at the book of Revelation. And I'm not even talking about the visionary parts where you can endlessly debate what it means and what it is. I'm talking about, let's just focus on the seven letters to the seven churches, okay? Each one of those letters contains a message from the Lord directly to that church, to those folks who are Christians in those cities. If you look at those letters, each one contains at least some word of rebuke or correction. And in the case of Smyrna, it doesn't contain such a word, but it does contain a prophetic word, a prophecy that says, look, some bad things are going to come. Hold on to the end. Persevere. So I spent the last 30 minutes talking about a biblical definition of peace, okay? And we saw from the scriptures in John, okay, that the Lord both gave them good things that were going to happen, some revelation about the way things were going to be, but he also told them some things were going to happen that they were not going to like, that they were going to have to go through trials and tribulations, okay? And yet, even in the midst of that, he told them to look to him for peace, a peace that passes all understanding, a 
peace that only comes from Jesus Christ. And I've also kind of narrowed in on a single verse, which is being used to say that, you know, all prophecy has to be positive, that it has to make the person who's receiving it has to make them feel good. But, you know, so one of the words in that verse, yes, it's clearly about comfort and consolation. One of the words, yes, there are some uses of it which are for comfort and encouragement, but there's other uses of the word which, you know, are a reminder of things that the person may have forgotten. But the the other word, the last word, okay, you know, edification has both good connotations, you know, it's good to help people build themselves up in the Lord, but it's also clearly clearly you can be used for correction, and that doesn't always feel good. So I think that we can find a biblical definition now of peace, the kind of peace that the Lord brings as, yes, he will bring comfort, but he will also bring reminders to us, and yet sometimes he will bring discipline to us. But it is all for our good. It is all so that we can be built up into that image of Christ likeness. So I could stop right there. I could, you know, stop recording and editing. I could, you know, format it, add the music. I could export it and I could upload it and I would have a podcast episode. And, you know, I at least some people I know would say, hey, you know, good teaching, Cliff. But as you might be guessing by now, this is not the end of it. Do you remember that I said at the beginning of the podcast that I felt like that I had a deadline from the Lord, that there was a certain day by which I had to have this recorded and edited and uploaded? Okay, so so that day is election day here in America. And as I'm recording this section of the podcast, it's Monday, it's November 2nd. I have been doing some recording and changing and editing over the weekend. But here it is, it's Monday, day before the election. And even though I've got 33 minutes, you know, in the can, so to speak, and despite the fact that Everything I've said is, you know, a good teaching in of itself. Everything that I've said up until now has been preparation and groundwork for what I'm fixing to say here in the last part of the podcast. Going back at least as far as 70 years, there have been proven men of God who have been talking about the direction that America is going, that if America did not change its course, that God would be forced to send judgment. To give you an example, I'm talking about uh, men like William Branham, David Wilkerson, more recently, uh, men like John Paul Jackson. Those are three examples of men who have talked about that, and those three have you know, gone on to be with the Lord. There are others who are still alive, Terry Bennett, Rick Joyner, Perry Stone, and the kinds of judgments that they have talked about are things like natural disasters, plagues, economic troubles, riots, Cities burning and being emptied. Do any of these things sound familiar to you? They should because, you know, natural disasters have been increasing in frequency over the past 20, 30 years. And ever since March, we have seen many of these things here in America. And yet when these men prophesied these things and when these things have happened and people have said, hey, look, you know what? I've been praying and the Lord showed me that, you know, this is judgment. This is warning that we need to change our way. There are people in the body of Christ who have criticized these men, who have mocked these men who have spoken out because they said, oh, well, you know, God wouldn't do that. First and foremost, every single one of these things is in the Bible, and the, they are things that God used as judgment. Another thing that people will say is, well, you know, God did stuff like that in the Old Testament, but he didn't do anything like that in the New Testament. Well, first of all, that's not true. But secondly, that is actually a heresy. 
Okay. It's a heresy that was dealt with, um, back, you know, back in the day and it's called Marcionism. And it's, it's basically the idea that somehow the God in the old Testament either is different than God in the new Testament or he changed. Okay. Well, you know, with the, we know that's not true. Okay. First, let me read from Malachi 3, verses 5 to 7. Then I will come near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, or the widow or the orphan, and those who turn away the stranger from justice and do not fear me, says the Lord of armies. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, the sons of Jacob, have not come to an end. From the days of your fathers you have turned away from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. But you say, how shall we return? And that's actually a very good question. We should be asking that question today. But let me move on. Let me read from James 1, 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Okay, so the same God who was judgmental and merciful in the Old Testament is the same God who in the New Testament we say is merciful, but yet he is still judgmental. How many times in the New Testament did Jesus say, I am doing the Father's will? You know what? Same Father in the New Testament that there was in the Old Testament, okay? So the argument that God is somehow different or God would not do something today that we see that he did in the Old Testament is absolutely 100% false, And yet there are many Christians today, both lay people and ministers, pastors, who will profoundly say, oh, well, you know, God would not do that. God would not judge. And they are in serious error. This past summer, a Assemblies of God pastor from Birchville, Kentucky, gained, you know, worldwide prominence when he started sharing dreams from the Lord. And the content of these dreams, again, were, you know, there there was this theme of judgment was coming to America because of, of the sins, of the abortion, of the way we've treated Israel. And yet there was a difference, okay? All the men that I've talked about before, you know, they talked about judgment coming, but there really wasn't this sense of when exactly, you know, things would happen and they said, oh yeah, you know, this is pointing to it, but really nothing specific, if you will, as far as time frame. But what made Pastor Coverstone's dream stand out is that he was actually given very specific time frames. And, you know, after he released his first dream back in June, I actually drove to Burksville, Kentucky on a Sunday and briefly met with him because I felt the anointing of the Holy Spirit on that dream. And I wanted to meet the man who was bold enough to say, hey, you know what? I had this dream and this is what it is. And it's confirmed by these other dreams I had back in December. And everything that I saw in December has been coming to pass in the last six months. And now I've got to tell you what's coming in the next few months. As a matter of fact, it was that dream and the discussions I had with various people about that dream, which finally sparked that, you know, dry kindling that the Lord had been putting on my heart to start a podcast. And I was resisting, but a discussion about that dream with someone finally brought me around to the point, okay, you know what? This person asked a question and I prayed and the Lord gave me an answer, but not just for that person, but for other people who are going to hear this dream and have the same question. And that's why I started the podcast that's covered in my first episode. And in that first episode, I believe it was the first or the second, I talk about a scripture, Deuteronomy 18.22. 
when the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and the thing does not happen or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You are not to be afraid of him. And if you look in Deuteronomy 13, you will find further instruction about if a prophet comes to you. Uh, Deuteronomy 13, 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let's follow other gods whom you have not known, and let's serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So there we have two tests, okay? If someone comes to us and claims to be a prophet or prophetic, number one, does something that they say will come to pass, does it actually come to pass? Okay. And if not, we do not fear them. Now, I pointed out in episode two, an example about Nathan the prophet, how he made a mistake. He spoke presumptuously, but then he repented and the Lord forgave him and continued to use him. There are cases like that, okay? And now the second test is if somebody comes and say, I'm a prophet or I'm a prophetic and they prophesy and something does happen and yet they say, you know what, let's worship another God, okay? Uh, You know, they might call it Jesus, but it's still not the Jesus of the Bible, okay, that we are to not follow them, okay, because it's a test. There may be someone who is thinking to themselves, well, Cliff, you know, you only used Old Testament scriptures to talk about prophecy and how we deal with that. Well, let me give you something from the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 and 20. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not early reject prophecies, but examine everything. Hold firmly to that which is good. So what does that mean? Basically, what it means is, does it conform to the standards in the Word, and did God do something like it in the elsewhere in the Bible? Every single person that I've mentioned by name, William Branham, David Wilkerson, John Paul Jackson, Terry Bennett, Rick Joyner, Perry Stone, and yes, even Dana Coverstone, have all prophesied things that have come to pass. I have examined the teachings of each one of these men, and they preach and teach the God of the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible that we know, okay? Now, that's not to say that I agree with every single thing that they say. That is not true. However, when they are saying, I had a dream, or I had a vision, or this is a prophecy from the Lord, I sense the anointing of the Holy Spirit on it. Now, you're probably wondering at this point, okay, Cliff, so what have these men said which is fixing to happen here in America, okay? And I will get to that in just a couple of minutes. But first, I want to address some of the criticisms that I've heard aimed at Dana Coverstone specifically, but I'm sure that they apply to these other men as well. And as a quick aside, please understand, I'm not implying that God does not use women to prophesy or speak prophetically. I do not hold that viewpoint. The Bible will back me up on that. I know what Paul wrote in Corinthians, okay? That can be another episode, okay? But for the moment, I am not saying that women cannot prophesy. I'm just merely highlighting the teachings and the men that the Lord showed me when he wanted me to cover this topic. So the first main criticism that I've heard leveled at Dana Coverstone is that what he received was a quote-unquote second heaven revelation. Now, very quickly, this idea that there are multiple heavens comes from 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2, where Paul writes, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And as I think most Christians are aware that have heard that verse, uh, Paul, we think that Paul was talking about himself and that he died when he was stoned and that the Lord brought him back to life. 
But this idea that there's, you know, a first, second, and third heaven is actually a Jewish worldview. And I am not saying that that's wrong. I actually, I think, unconsciously have that same particular worldview, and I have not yet found anything in Scripture which contradicts that. And so the basic idea is that, you know, third heaven is the place, is, you know, heaven, heaven, the place where God and Jesus and everyone who has died in the Lord goes to live, and that the second heaven is this realm of the demonic, of demons. It's those dry places that when Jesus talked about, you know, the, the evil spirit that was cast out of a man and it wandered in dry places. That's kind of like, you know, the idea of second heaven and then that the first heaven is actually, you know, creation itself, earth and, you know, everything in the universe. Second heaven is also considered to be the place where, you know, psychics get the knowledge that they get, you know, or tarot cards, you know, all that kind of fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. You understand? And so there are a lot of people who accuse Dana Coverstone of saying, well, you know, you know, you're not a prophet, you know, you're not prophetic. And so, you know, you can't be hearing from the Lord. You're just picking up on this other stuff. And they use a lot of verses out of context, like I've talked about, to justify that position. You know, another one that they like to use is Jeremiah 29 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for prosperity and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And yes, those things are absolutely true. However, we I've talked about two realities. Okay. Number one, that we don't always follow the will of the Lord. And if necessary, the Lord will use those things, disasters, this tough love to correct us. Because my second point is, is that God's definition of good is very different than our human definition of good. Okay. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But if you look at the book of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Revelation, and other places in the Bible, and even history since the Bible was written, we see that God will allow bad things to happen to his people for his own purposes, for his own reasons. And sometimes it's discipline, it's tough love, okay? And others, it's simply because, you know what, we are not better than Jesus. And if the world hates him, they're going to hate us. A second criticism that I have heard of Dana Coverstone is that he prophesied in vague terms and that actually his dreams for September did not come to pass. And I'm going to address that. Number one, the accusation that he prophesied in vague terms. Well, you know what? Actually, that's not true. He was very specific. Now, the person in question, uh, you know, comes out frequently against what he calls horoscope prophecy or fortune cookie prophecy. In other words, these kind of vague positive words, which could, you know, be for anybody and mean basically anything. And I'm in agreement with that person on that. However, Dana Coverstone prophesied very specific and to very specific people, the people living in America. And the second charge of his prophecy is not coming to pass. I'm going to go over just a couple of things that he prophesied for September. Okay. In the dream for September there, he saw two fires, one from the Lord and one from the enemy. And he also saw a victory. Now the fires I think, you know, while there was rioting in various cities, that's when Sean Foyt, okay, this worship leader who came out of nowhere and started having these worship meetings out in the open, on in the beach, on the streets, everywhere. At the same time that, you know, fires were burning during the riots in, in these various cities, that fire of God was being lit and was gaining notoriety. So there are your two fires right there. 
Okay. And so what was the victory, you ask? Well, in the last episode, I talk about the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. At that time, you know, who knew if the confirmation hearings of a Trump appointee would go through? Here it is, November 2nd. And now we have gone from Ruth Bader Ginsburg to Amy Coney Barrett. Okay. So we've gone from someone who promotes abortion and gay marriage to someone who upholds Christian values. That is a victory. So I've addressed some things that were leveled at Dana Coverstone specifically. I have also addressed reasons why people have rejected these other men of God who have prophesied judgment coming to America. So now I'm going to talk about what these men of God have been seeing and prophesying concerning judgment coming to America and what some of them believe is imminent. I mean, like at the door, literally. Now, I obviously can't address the current beliefs of the men of God who have gone on to be with the Lord, but I will briefly discuss uh, things that they talked about. William Branham talked about a woman who would come to power to the presidency in the United States and that her ascendancy to power would signal the end of times, the coming of the Antichrist. Now, I don't think I need to go into why Hillary Clinton does not have Christian values, nor Kamala Harris. And it's a well-known, I'll say, I'll call it conspiracy theory, that some people hold that, you know, the Democratic Party, they don't want Joe Biden, they actually want Kamala Harris in the White House, and that should Joe Biden win the presidency, that within a very short period of time, he would actually come to an accident, not be able to fulfill the role of the office, and then Kamala Harris would be president. Now, some of the things that David Wilkerson saw were things like Perry Stone is talking about uh, in the last few months. He saw cities burning and cities emptied, okay? And, we, you know, we couldn't fathom something like that. Yet, during the lockdowns, that's exactly what we saw. We saw empty buildings, and yet, once the riots started, they were on fire. People were rioting in the streets. So I think the question of whether or not those specific prophecies would come to pass are moot at this point, okay? They did. We've seen it. As for John Paul Jackson... Uh, if you've heard of him, you've probably heard a book and a teaching that he talked about a lot. He called it the perfect storm. He saw the collapse of America, both from natural disasters, economic collapse, and a plague, actually two plagues. The first one, he said, would be one mostly of fear. And while I don't deny that COVID-19 is real, I think that we could apply that definition to COVID-19 the way it's been overblown. But the second plague, he said, would be much more severe and would actually be a real honest-to-goodness plague, okay? So we've seen the first one. We've yet to see the second one. And there are other things that John Paul Jackson prophesied, which have already come to pass. So I've talked a little bit about Perry Stone. He's still alive. A lot of what he has seen is very similar to what David Wilkerson saw. So I'm not going to go over that again. I'm just going to kind of, you know, move on to the other gentleman. For many years, Rick Joyner has been talking about a civil war in America, okay? And not only that, he has been talking about a civil war in the church, actually. And I think that you would be hard-pressed to convince me that there has not been a separation in the church, there has not been splits in the church over doctrine, especially over the issue of, you know, gay marriage and things like that, over abortion, okay? There has been this separation, okay, where people who uh, espouse these ideas, they hold to these ideas of abortion and gay marriage, and yet they still call themselves Christian, and they justify it for— you know, they have to twist the word, they have to cut out certain passages of the word to justify it. Whereas other people like me, we said, no, we reject abortion, we reject gay marriage as not being biblical, and we're going to hold to these 
um, ideals. The, we're going to hold to what the word says. But like I mentioned, he's also seen a civil war in America. He's been prophesying this. He's been talking about this for many years. And I think that we can see very clearly in today's headline that there is a very clear definition, an ideological split between Republican and Democrat, okay, between conservative and liberal. There's not this kind of ability to work together anymore. It's either one thing or another. And not only that, we have seen over the last four years how the Democrats have come time and again trying to accuse Trump of this, accuse him of that, trying to get him out of office, and they have been unsuccessful. Now, I want to make a very clear statement here that I believe uh, it was said best by Dr. Michael Brown. President Trump is not my pastor. He's not my savior. He's simply my president. And yes, he sometimes says things and does things which are very unpresidential. But at the end of the day, like I spent the entirety of episode three going over, it's not about personality or his haircut or whether it's a man or a woman. It's about the issues and what the Bible says about the issues and the fact that at the end of the day, it's not my vote, it's the Lord's vote. And I, I look at the word of the Lord and I pray and I say, Lord, who do you want me to vote for? And that's why I voted for Trump in 2016. I voted for Trump in this election. But given everything that we've seen over the last four years with the Democrats trying to get Trump out of office, if Trump wins the election, I can see the Democrats making backroom deals to start riots, okay, saying, hey, that, you know, Trump stole the election. And these riots are such to a degree that Washington is completely on fire and it's everything is so bad in the country that the Democrats call in foreign troops to bring order, which is exactly what Dana Coverstone has been prophesying. And actually, Terry Bennett, who has for years been prophesying about America is headed for judgment and very specifically a civil war, has been saying that it's no longer a possibility. It is inevitable. And actually, Rick Joyner has said that civil war, from his perspective, from what he knows from the Lord, is inevitable as well. And remember, I'm not talking about people who you know, talk about conspiracy theory this and conspiracy theory that. I'm talking about men of God who preach the Bible and who have prophesied things that have come to pass, and now they are prophesying that this election with a Trump victory is going to spark an American civil war. And the thing is that many Christians have rejected both these men and these prophecies for all the reasons that I've been talking about. That's why it took so long to lay a foundation showing that God in the Bible does things this way, that prophecy is still for today and that God is still in the business of judging nations. Now, things are further confused because you have people at the same time that these gentlemen are prophesying judgment and civil war in America, you have other people who are talking about, you know, there's going to be revival and third great awakening. So who do you believe? There is a very well-respected minister. His name is Bobby Connor, and he is both grounded in the word and is a full practitioner of all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And he is one of the gentlemen who are prophesying a revival coming to America, third great awakening, things of that nature. And I will tell you that he has prophesied things that have come to pass. And he preaches the Jesus of the Bible, okay? So he meets all the requirements that I talked about earlier. 
However, I point him out because he stands out for this reason, okay? In the midst of prophesying about revival coming to America, about awakening coming to America, he acknowledges that America is in the midst of judgment. And so does Rick Joyner. He believes that, yes, America is in the midst of judgment and civil war is imminent, yet God is going to cause it for our good and it's going to help bring about a revival in the church and a third great awakening. And even Perry Stone has a similar revelation from the Lord. And on the surface, that may seem like contradictory or confusion, but actually, let's go to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 9. For we know in part and prophesy in part. What does that mean? That means when God gives prophetic revelation to somebody, he only gives them a part. Now, some people, you know, he will give one part, another person he'll give another part. But it's collectively that we find fulfillment of Amos 3.7. Certainly the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret plan to his servants, the prophets. I realize that I've been talking for quite a while now, 55 minutes. And by this time, you may be wondering, well, Cliff, you know, what's the takeaway? What is the point of you talking so long about all this stuff? And what am I supposed to do about it? First, I established a biblical definition of peace. And that definition of peace is quite different than the peace that the world thinks about, okay? That even in the midst of trials and tribulations of going through hard times that we can have peace from the Lord. Okay. It's a peace that we can only get from him. The second thing is that I briefly talked about how prophecy is for today, but it's not just for being positive. It is for comfort. It is for reminding us of things that the Lord has tried to talk to us about previously, both from his word and as individuals. And it is also for building us up into that Christ likeness, that image of Christ that God has purposed for us. And that at times it's actually going to, it comes to help tear down those things which don't belong. Those things in our lives, which are not from God, that wood, hay and stubble that we've been trying to build on the foundation, which is Christ. And he brings that discipline, that correction, so that we have the opportunity to build with gold, silver, and precious stones so that when we come and meet with the Lord, we have a reward. And not only that, but more importantly, the Lord has that holy habitation, that temple made without hands that he can dwell in. So he can dwell in us. The third takeaway is that just as he did in the Bible, the Lord has sent prophets to this country to warn us that we are guilty of the blood of millions of innocents, that we have come to a point where we're calling good evil and evil good, and that if we don't repent, that the Lord will continue to send more severe judgments until we do repent. And I'm going to tell you, even if you are a person who is not guilty of these things, I point out the example of Daniel, who was not guilty of the things that Israel did, and yet when he prayed, he repented of those things as if he had done those himself. That is the position of a true intercessor, of someone who is praying for their nation. And that by and large, these prophets that the Lord has sent to America, they have been mocked, they've been ignored, and now what they are saying, proven men of God who have prophesied things which have already come to pass, they are saying that more severe judgments are not only coming, but they are inevitable, and that they are just around the corner. So what do we do? Well, number one, we pray and repent. Recall that in September, 
not only Danny Coverstone, but Jonathan Kahn, who wrote The Harbinger, and he talks about judgment coming to America, called for the solemn assemblies for people to gather and come and pray for America, to repent for all the things that we've done. And I got to tell you that as I prayed for America in September and October, I couldn't punch it up on a calculator or put it in a test tube, but I've had this sense from the Lord when I've talked to him about it, that these prayers actually have made a difference. However, I must say that not one of these men who I have mentioned who have been prophesying judgment coming to America has changed what they've been talking about. And yet, I still have hope for several reasons. Again, from Hebrews 12, the Lord disciplines those that he loves. Not a single prophecy that I've heard about judgment coming to America has been explicit in that America is going to be destroyed. Now, there may be some people calling themselves Christians, calling themselves prophets, who are saying, yes, America is Babylon the Great, it's going to fall. But no, I'm talking about men of God who preach the Jesus of the Bible and who have a proven track record of prophesying things that come to pass. Not a single one of them is prophesying that America is about to be destroyed. Secondly, I have hope that in that there are other people of God who are prophesying that there is revival coming, there's a third great awakening coming, and again, these are people of God who have a track record of prophesying things that come to pass and that and that they preach the God of the Bible. So that my hope lies in God. Okay, and that yes, he is going to discipline this nation, he's going to judge things in this nation, and yet he is not going to destroy this nation. And he has actually sent those to prophesy that yes, he wants to come back in revival, he wants to come back with a third great awakening. One of the dreams of Dana Coverstone, I don't remember which one, Dana Coverstone actually prophesies this, okay, that even in the midst of America being judged and with so many things going wrong, yet there are those who are filled with God's light, God's hope that start to shine brightly and spread that light to other people. And I have heard some criticism, both of Dana Coverstone and some of these other people. And what they say is, well, you know, you don't have to be prophetic to understand that there's going to be turmoil around this election. And that's a legitimate point. But I think that they are fooling themselves if they believe that God does not still judge nations, that God would not judge this nation. Another thing that you should do is to be Berean, go to the word and see if this is not how God deals with nations. And don't cherry pick verses, but look into the full counsel of the Lord. Look into the Greek, look into the Hebrew meaning. And as always, pray, seek the Lord, ask him, ask for him to give you wisdom on these things. And whatever the Lord tells you to do, do it, be it to continue in prayer for America or to do something, you know, in the natural, like get some food together, you know, have a freezer in the garage or something, whatever. You know, it's not a sin to prepare in the natural for things. And even if you haven't had time to prepare and things start to really get bad, understand that the Lord sees you, he knows you, he knows your situation, and you just have to look to him for wisdom and he will guide you and he will provide for you. I know that for some of you, what I'm saying may be hard to hear, may be hard to accept, but these are things which I have asked the Lord about and I have gotten a peace from him, even as I am appalled at some of the things that some of these prophets are saying about what's going to happen in America. Okay, it's it's appalling. I don't want these things to happen. And yet, when I look at the sins that we have been committing as a nation, and I look at how God dealt with nations like this in the Bible, 
what these prophets are prophesying is exactly the same way that God dealt with those nations. So even if these events are not literally around the corner, that they take a while to develop, I still believe that they are coming and that everything that I've said in this podcast episode is legitimate, even if some of these things either don't come to pass or may have even been mitigated by our prayers. But I will give you this promise that if there are things that I've mentioned in this podcast that were about to happen to America and they don't, then I will repent. I will repent of spreading a prophecy given by someone else that did not come to pass. Because Paul told Timothy to be careful to follow the teachings that the Lord had given him and the the teachings that Timothy was given to other people. In a previous episode of this podcast, I criticized some people who claimed to be prophets, prophetic, who prophesied something and it didn't come to pass. Okay. And I quoted that scripture from Deuteronomy, you know, do not fear someone who prophesies and it doesn't come to pass. But I also pointed out that legitimate prophets of the Bible, Nathan, can speak presumptuously and be corrected by the Lord, but they still need to repent if they want to be used by God in the future. So if that is the case with this episode of the podcast, I will apologize and repent. I know that this has been an unusually long episode, but yet there is still one more thing that I feel led of the Lord to do. And I just want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for your patience. And this will just take uh, about maybe five more minutes. Over the past few months, as I have been hearing and studying these prophecies of judgment coming to America, I will share with you that I was guilty of beginning to lose hope. I was even beginning to despair. Yet in the midst of it, as I was seeking the Lord about these things, he reminded me of something that I had come across years ago, and I'm going to share it with you here. It is a prophetic encounter that George Washington was given. It was the winter of 1777-1778, while the Continental Army was encamped at Valley Forge. So the story goes that after George Washington had this encounter with an angel of the Lord, that he related the story to a gentleman named Anthony Sherman, and that Anthony Sherman kept this memory of what happened to George Washington, and that in 1859, he related it to a reporter just before his death. Now, before I read you the text of the encounter, I'm going to say that the earliest publishing date that has been found was June 24th of 1861 in the Philadelphia Inquirer, and that the person who published it in the newspaper actually used a pseudonym. And supposedly the person, you know, this pseudonym was used by a reporter who was publishing things that we would consider to be, you know, propaganda or even as some would call it fake news. However, given the fact that it has a verified publishing date of June 24th, 1861, and yet it correctly prophesies the Civil War in America gives it a lot of credence that this is something that even in the midst of all that junk that was going out, that this was something legitimate. And we, of course, know that that's a strategy of the enemy, that even in the midst of something that God is doing, the enemy will you know, throw out a lot of counterfeit of the same thing to get people to look at the what the enemy is doing instead of what God is doing. And not only that, but actually Snopes.com. Okay, Snopes.com, you heard it, Snopes.com has taken the time to quote-unquote debunk what I'm about to read to you, okay? They say it's false, it's propaganda, they say that it's accurate because it was written 
after the fact. And yet they ignore the fact that it correctly prophesies not only the Civil War, which had already begun, but it prophesies the ending of the Civil War, which had not happened yet. And yet they still, you know, the Book of Nahum, I recently found out, people think that, well, you know, it was accurate because it was written after the fact. And just like, as you may or may not know, that some biblical scholars, air quotes, can, you know, consider Daniel to have been written by three Daniels. And again, it's only accurate because it was written after the fact. So that's what some critics say, at least. Now, I'm not comparing what I'm about to read to you with Scripture, okay? It's not Scripture. But what I am pointing out is that, number one, people have used the same criticisms that they've used of Scripture to criticize this, and that people like Snopes.com have, for some unfathomable reason, have felt it necessary to look at this and quote-unquote debunk it or call it not true. Why do they feel the need to do that? It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Needless to say that before I read it to you, I believe that this is a true encounter that George Washington had with an angel of the Lord, and that the visions that George Washington was given have been proven to be true and yet to be true. And a quick reminder before I read this for you, we have several examples in the Bible where the Lord gave this kind of vision to leaders of a country, you know, which prophesied the destiny of the country. So again, you know, this does not break in any way the biblical example that we have. So now here is the vision of George Washington. This afternoon, as I was sitting at this table engaged in preparing a dispatch, something in the apartment seemed to disturb me. Looking up, I beheld standing opposite me a singularly beautiful being. So astonished was I, for I had given strict orders not to be disturbed, that it was some moments before I found language to inquire the cause of the visit. A second, a third, and even a fourth time I did repeat my question, but received no answer from my mysterious visitor except a slight raising of the eyes. By this time I felt strange sensations spreading through me. I would have risen, but the riveted gaze of the being before me rendered volition impossible. I stayed once more to speak, but my tongue had become useless as if paralyzed. A new influence, mysterious, potent, irresistible, took possession of me. All I could do was to gaze steadily, vacantly at my unknown visitor. Gradually, the surrounding atmosphere seemed to fill with sensations and grew luminous. Everything about me seemed to rarefy, the mysterious visitor also becoming more airy and yet more distinct to my sight than before. I began to feel as one dying or rather to experience the sensations which I have sometimes imagined accompany death. I did not think, I did not reason, I did not move. All were alike impossible. I was only conscious of gazing fixedly, vacantly, at my companion. The First Great Peril Presently I heard a voice saying, Son of the Republic, look and learn, while at the same time my visitor extended an arm eastward. I now beheld a heavy white vapor at some distance rising fold upon fold. This gradually dissipated, and I looked upon a strange scene. Before me lay, spread out in one vast plain, all the countries of the world, Europe, Asia, Africa, and America. I saw rolling and tossing between Europe and America the billows of the Atlantic, and between Asia and America lay the Pacific. Son of the Republic, said the same mysterious voice as before, look and learn. At that moment, I beheld a dark, shadowy being, like an angel, standing, or rather floating in midair, between Europe and America. Dipping water out of the ocean in the hollow of each hand, he sprinkled some upon America with his right hand, while with his left hand, he cast some over Europe. Immediately, a cloud arose from these countries and joined in mid-ocean. For a while, it remained stationary, and then it moved slowly westward until it enveloped America in its murky folds. Sharp flashes of lightning gleamed through it at intervals, and I heard the smothered groans and cries of the American people. 
A second time, the angel dipped water from the ocean and sprinkled it out as before. The dark cloud was then drawn back to the ocean in whose heaving billows it sank from view. Now, just as a quick note, people who regard this prophetic experience as genuine almost universally agree that that first peril represents the American Revolution. The second peril. A third time I heard the mysterious voice saying, Son of the Republic, look and learn. I cast my eyes upon America and beheld villages and towns and cities springing up one after another until the whole land from the Atlantic to the Pacific was dotted with them. Again, I heard the mysterious voice say, Son of the Republic, the end of the century comes, look and learn. And this time the dark shadowy angel turned his face southward. From Africa, I saw an ill-omened specter approach our land. It flitted slowly and heavily over every town and city of the latter. The inhabitants presently set themselves in battle array against each other. As I continued looking, I saw a bright angel on whose brow rested a crown of light, on which was traced the word Union. He was bearing the American flag. He placed the flag between the divided nation and said, Remember, you are brethren. Instantly, the inhabitants, casting down their weapons, became friends once more and united around the national standard. Now, again, that vision has been interpreted as the Civil War. And I'm going to remind you, now this has been verified that this vision was published in June of 1861, just a couple of months after the Civil War started, and yet it prophesied the end of the Civil War. And and not only that, but more importantly, that the uh, Union would be restored which was not a guarantee. Matter of fact, the South very nearly won on several occasions, and yet ultimately they did not win, and the Union was restored just as detailed in this vision, which was given to George Washington, carried by Anthony Sherman, and then ultimately published in June of 1861. Now, I'm about to share with you the third vision, okay, which has not yet come to pass, but yet given that the first and the second vision came to pass, we can anticipate that it will come to pass in God's way and in God's timing. The third great peril. And again, I heard the mysterious voice saying, Son of the Republic, look and learn. At this, the dark shadowy angel placed a trumpet to his mouth and blew three distinct blasts, and taking water from the ocean, he sprinkled it upon Europe, Asia, and Africa. Then my eyes beheld a fearful scene. From each of these countries arose thick black clouds that were soon joined into one. Throughout this mass, there gleamed a dark red light by which I saw hordes of armed men who, moving with the cloud, marched by land and sailed by sea to America. Our country was enveloped in this volume of cloud, and I saw these vast armies devastate the whole country and burn the villages, towns, and cities that I beheld springing up. As my ears listened to the thundering of the cannon, clashing of sword, and the shouts and cries of millions in mortal combat, I heard again the mysterious voice saying, Son of the Republic, look and learn. When the voice had ceased, the dark shadowy angel placed his trumpet once more to his mouth and blew a long and fearful blast. Instantly, a light as of a thousand suns shone down from above me and pierced and broke into fragments the dark cloud which enveloped America. At the same moment, the angel upon whose head still shone the word Union, and who bore our national flag in one hand and a sword in the other, descended from the heavens attended by legions of white spirits. These immediately joined the inhabitants of America, who I perceived were well nigh overcome, but who immediately, taking courage again, closed up their broken ranks and renewed the battle. Again, amid the fearful noise of the conflict, I heard the mysterious voice saying, Son of the Republic, look and learn. As the voice ceased, the shadowy angel for the last time dipped water from the ocean and sprinkled it upon America. Instantly, the dark cloud rolled back together with the armies it had brought, leaving the inhabitants of the land victorious. 
Then once more I beheld the villages, towns, and cities springing up where I had seen them before, while the bright angel planting the azure standard he had brought in the midst of them cried with a loud voice, While the stars remain and the heavens send down dew upon the earth, so long shall the union last. And taking from his brow the crown on which blazoned the word union, he placed it upon the standard while the people, kneeling down, said, Amen. The scene instantly began to fade and dissolve, and I at last saw nothing but the rising curling vapor I at first beheld. This also disappearing, I found myself once more gazing upon the mysterious visitor who, in the same voice I had heard before, said, Son of the Republic, what you have seen is thus interpreted. Three great perils will come upon the Republic. The most fearful is the third, but in this greatest conflict the whole world united shall not prevail against her. Let every child of the Republic learn to live for his God, his land, and the Union. With these words, the vision vanished, and I started from my own seat and felt that I had seen a vision wherein I had been shown to me the birth, progress, and destiny of the United States. I know that this has been a very long episode, but I hope now that you see the importance of all the things that I've been talking about. They are all things that the Lord impressed upon me to put into this episode, however long it may have been. And my first goal has been to be as obedient as I can to the Lord. My second goal has been to, if you don't already believe already that America is in danger of being judged, that judgment is on the way for America from God, then I hope that I have shown you that it is and that we need to be in prayer for America to repent of these wicked things that we have been doing, that we have been approving of as a nation. And also that we need to recognize that God has been sending us prophets and prophetic voices warning us of these things, and that by and large we have ignored them or we have mocked them, okay? And that comes with a price as well. Yet even in the midst of all this, we should never forget that the Lord loves America, just like he loves every other nation on the earth. And I can say that because he is sending us discipline. He disciplines those whom he loves. He's also sending us prophets and prophetic words about revival, about harvest, about great awakening. And so we need to accept the judgment and repent of our sins, but we also need to look at what the Lord wants to do in this country. He wants to revive us. He wants to awaken us. He wants this nation to once again send forth people to win souls for his kingdom. Ultimately, we should be understanding that even if Trump wins, that it's not the government that we should be looking to. It is not the Supreme Court or even Congress or any elected official that we should be looking to to provide us a sense of security or a sense of peace. We should only be looking at the Lord to provide us that sense of peace. It's a peace that comes from the Lord's comfort and even sometimes the Lord's discipline. Remember all the things that I talked about in the book of John that Jesus revealed to the disciples, both the good things that were going to come and the bad things, and yet what the Lord had to say about all that, and what I believe he's saying to us today, even in the midst of these prophecies concerning judgment and revival, is that he has spoken all these things to us so that in him and him alone, we would have peace. I'm going to read John 14, 27 again one more time, and this is Jesus speaking to us, I believe, today. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Thank you so very much for listening to all this. Again, I know it was long, but I hope that it's been a blessing to you. Please keep me in prayer. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at harvestword.org at gmail.com. 
If you want to sow financially into what the Lord is doing through this podcast, there's a PayPal link in the description below. Remember that this podcast is available not only on harvestword.org, it's available on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and Apple Podcasts. Once again, thank you for listening. I pray that you've been blessed by this. And if you have, please share it with your friends. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And I'll see you next time here on the Harvest Word Podcast. Thank you.